if an oil company wants to get to net zero, it will have to become a different company because it cannot have any emissions, at least not the hundreds of millions of tons of emissions that most of these majors produce. And that's what you're seeing in Europe. Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. I'm energy and climate journalist, Markham Hislop. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Akshat Rathi, Bloomberg energy and climate journalist, about ExxonMobil announcing an ambition for net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. They made this announcement on January 18th. So welcome back to Energy Talks, Aksha. Hi, good to be here. Look, let's start off uh, at the 35,000 foot level on this. And uh, I have a problem with uh, ExxonMobil calling this an ambition. And the reason for that is because we see the Canadian oil majors doing exactly the same thing. And based on their behavior, for me, ambition means uh, they're fudging it. They don't, they're, instead of making a commitment to net zero by 2050, what they're basically saying is we'll give it, we'll give it our best try. And yeah, it's an interesting choice of words. I mean, this is also something that uh, Chevron, for example, calls it an aspiration. Um, and it's different from how the European majors do, where they set a target. And, you know, it is a, it is a bit of a, a game of words where, you know, our targets more stringent than ambitions and aspirations. Of course, they seem to be. But at the end of the day, it would be down to the shareholders. If the shareholders treat the ambition as a target and hold the company accountable to it, hold its uh, you know targets that it has set or ambition it has set, and showcase how the company is progressing towards them and ensure that the company does make pro progress towards them, then the ambition is as good as a target. But it would, does require some effort on the shareholders' part if the company is using the word ambition rather than a target. Well, in that case, maybe there's some room for optimism here because in Canada, the, the, uh, the, we don't have the kind of activist shareholders that uh, ExxonMobil uh, generally has at their annual general meetings. So if since there are activist shareholders, uh, should we then be a little more charitable towards ExxonMobil using ambition? I mean, Perhaps because we can be pretty certain that these changes have come about because of some of those uh, activist investors uh, that Exxon has had. You know, not long ago, uh, Exxon CEO, uh, who's currently the CEO, Darren Woods, said uh, net zero was a beauty contest or something like that, which is, um, you know, a way to say, I'm never going to fall for that kind of game. And look, here he is uh, a few years later doing exactly what investors demand, uh, or at least environmentally uh, minded investors demand. So yes, it, it does seem like investors are playing a role, uh, but you know it's a constant battle. So they'll have to be on that case year in, year out. Look at the progress, look at uh, whether the ambition is being met. Well, let's talk about uh, the ExxonMobil plan. Can you give us an overview of it, please? You know, understanding oil uh, company climate plans is quite simple in one way because they all have three types of emissions, scope one, scope two, and scope three. Scope one emissions are those that they generate by burning fuels in their own assets. So this might be a natural gas turbine. 
that is uh, being run uh, to provide power. Uh, scope two is emissions that are coming from use of energy that are being supplied to you. So somebody else burning it in a natural gas turbine to give you electricity, that's scope two. Now that tends to be typically less than 20% of oil and gas emissions. The rest of it, which is everything from supply chain emissions uh, to mostly what happens when you burn those fuels is scope three emissions. And if you look at a target of an oil company, those are the, the three scopes that you should look at and you should ask what the company is doing. And in Exxon's case, its ambition is only to zero out scope one and two emissions, which means it's only really to address 20% of its total emissions, 80%, um, it's not going to uh, try and get to zero. It will reduce those, it has said, but with no clear um, targets. Right. So the, uh, that's a, a big problem uh, right off the, the get-go. Uh, and the, <clears throat> Darren Woods, the chief executive officer, says that the company is going to be developing comprehensive roadmaps uh, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the operated assets. I, you know, why, why now? I mean, we're 2022 and one of the biggest oil companies in the world is only just getting around to do uh, developing roadmaps to decarbonization. That seems to be, that's a major foot dragging right there. Yeah, and it's been something that industry uh, comparisons have shown. Exxon has been labeled as a laggard in this space. Uh, for a long time, and even coming to this ambition, it is uh, a laggard, um, and that's very clear. But it also shows to some extent that even the laggards can't uh, stay too far behind, uh, especially with the kind of investors that they have, because investors are now demanding that if, the, if your company has to remain relevant uh, in the coming future, um, especially if you're a long-term investor looking at a company's decadal future rather than just the next quarter, then you will need companies that are ready uh, to, reduce ambition, to reduce emissions so as to match uh, what the science is saying, which is we need to reach net zero within decades. So here are some of their, their targets. Uh, 20 to 30% reduction in corporate-wide uh, greenhouse gas intensity. 40 to 50% reduction in upstream greenhouse gas intensity, 70 to 80% reduction in corporate-wide methane intensity, and a 60 to 70% reduction in corporate-wide flaring intensity. Are, are, is that ambitious enough? Well, again, these are goals that you ought to have, and that's good. But if you don't have scope three, you're not really addressing 80% of the problem. So... Uh, this gets you some way there, but without scope three, it's not really a net zero plan. Well, let's talk about scope three, because what that really gets to is, do, do, does the company have a low carbon business model plan? Uh, you know, you look at the, I guess the contrast would be with the European majors like uh, Equinor and Shell, who are pivoting to a lower, a low carbon business model. They're getting into uh, all different aspects of the electricity business. Uh, that's a popular one. They're investing in uh, offshore wind, onshore wind, uh, electric uh, vehicle charging infrastructure. Some of them are even trying to become almost like utilities 
in a way. Uh, that's a very different model than ExxonMobil is pursuing. And it reminds me, it's ExxonMobil is, is essentially doing the same thing that the Canadian majors are doing. And that is uh, focus first and foremost on decarbonization with a minor emphasis on developing low, carb, low carbon business models or aspects to their business model. Which, is that a fair summation? I think that's a fair summation. It's a... Uh... If an oil company wants to get to net zero, it will have to become a different company because it cannot have any emissions, at least not the hundreds of millions of tons of emissions that most of these majors produce. And that's what you're seeing in Europe. That's why uh, Shell and BP and Total and Equinor are going away from fossil fuels. They're uh, selling their assets, they are buying more assets in clean energy, the, the long list that you provided. But it's also a very risky transition because you were an oil and gas company, you have an expertise in a certain area that you have developed and you're going to become, and you have become very efficient at. And now you're going to take on a completely new line of business. And there is no guarantee you're going to be able to develop the kind of expertise needed to compete in that business. So, um, is that the right bet or is what Exxon is doing just from a pure financial perspective, the right bet is hard, uh, is hard to see. You know, it, it might seem like the Exxon bet is the right financial bet uh, until of course you realize that regulations kick in and suddenly the value of oil and the gas that you have, which has been rising for the last two years, falls and falls drastically. And that's when suddenly the Exxon bet becomes the wrong bet and the Shell and BP bet becomes the right bet. I think there's one more thing to talk about here, which probably is, is a side point, but worthy of this discussion because we are talking about scope three. Now, only corporations have scope three. Countries don't have scope three. And this has annoyed a lot of people where you can have Saudi Arabia reach a net zero goal, legit net zero goal, because the UN doesn't count any oil that Saudi Arabia might export and India might burn into Saudi Arabia's carbon accounts. And many people think, well, if you do that to ExxonMobil, which is doing the same thing, producing the oil, but somebody else is burning it, then why doesn't Saudi Arabia have scope three? And that's a, it's a very important carbon accounting point that we're going to have to grapple with uh, in, in, uh, in coming years and decades. And here's the best answer I've, I could have come up with, which is there are only a very limited number of countries, less than 200. UN accounting rules mean that every country has to report those emissions from their own regions, which means every country has to report at scope one and scope two emissions, if we take those definitions. And every country has to reach net zero if we had to tackle climate change. And because it's a limited number of countries, we can actually account for those territorial emissions and make sure all of them reach net zero. Corporations are not like that. There are what, 20,000 public companies, large enough, large public companies in the world, and hundreds of thousands, probably millions of small businesses. If every one of those reported scope one and two and every one of those had a net zero target, then we can defend ExxonMobil's net zero target, which is only scope one and two. But that's not the case. You're only ever going to get the large companies uh, revealing their emissions and setting net zero goals, which is why we have to have scope three because it's their scope three that will then drive change across the supply chain 
and across consumer behavior, which will get us eventually to where we need to go to. Well, let's talk about uh, consumer behavior for a minute, because one of the, uh, um, I, I, I was going to say disturbing, and maybe that's a bit strong, but one of the uh, trends that I notice amongst uh, oil companies is that they are very skeptical about the idea of peak oil demand by 2030-ish, the way the Inter uh, International Energy Agency uh, that forecasts. And they think that beyond 2050, there's going to be uh, quite a bit of oil demand left. So right now we do, we uh, consume about hundred million barrels of, of oil a day. And many of them, they won't say this publicly, but uh, certainly privately uh, and occasionally uh, when they're a little more candid than maybe they, they uh, intended to be, they'll, they'll say that they think it'll be closer to 50 to 75 million barrels a day, and they are intend to be competitive in that particular market. So when you, when you think of this issue within that mindset, you can see why these companies are putting such a focus on decarbonization, because they have, in my opinion, uh, an overinflated and unrealistic view of what oil consumption is likely to be by mid-century. And we can see with the the rapid acceleration of uh, rapid acceleration of electrification of, of transportation, especially light duty cars and trucks, that 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 might not be a very good strategy. And what's your take on that? I think it's an interesting one. When do you reach peak oil and when not? And I think uh, the, it's to some who are not uh, in this industry, it might feel from the outside like you are obsessing about some figure which you know, maybe in the large scheme of things doesn't matter. Um, what really matters is reducing demand and reducing it quickly. But it's quite important because the oil and gas industry, especially the oil industry, uh, is so tightly uh, run on the supply demand uh, interaction that as soon as you reach peak demand, the only direction you go for demand is decline. And that is uh, a... Um, a trend that this industry has never dealt with in the past. The oil industry for the past 150 years that it's existed has always been looking at more and more demand. Sometimes there'll be a blip here or there just as we had in 2020 and maybe in the oil crisis, but eventually that goes back up above the previous point. And peak demand will mean that never happens again. And it's a kind of uh, shock to the system that hasn't been appreciated, understood, or acted upon. And all these uh, moves towards decarbonization are you know, in one way to try and hedge against that kind of risk, uh, but that risk will play out in, in ways we can't predict today. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And uh, there's a big emphasis uh, in the ExxonMobil uh, strategy document on policies that they want to see uh, to support uh, new technology development uh, is a big part of that. And what they, they don't say explicitly, but we see play out in places like Canada, is that means the industry coming to government and saying, we need you to subsidize much of what we're, uh, much of our decarbonization efforts. So I'll bring the Alberta uh, oil sands as an example. Last summer, they launched the uh, oil sands net zero by 2050 uh, pathways initiative. 
and probably 50 to 60% of getting to net zero by 2050 will be carbon capture and storage. And the whole project together, they're estimating will cost $75 billion, of which they want governments to pay $50 billion. Well, no wonder they put so much emphasis on policy. And, and uh, this, I, and, and I suspect because, well, I mean, uh, ExxonMobil's subsidiary, uh, um, Imperial Oil operates in Canada and supports that policy in, in Canada as part of that Pathways Initiative. And I suspect that that will be part of ExxonMobil's strategy around the world. They'll be looking to national and subnational governments to subsidize their decarbonization. Yeah, I mean, in some way, it already is pretty clear that's uh, part of their plan because uh, one of their big flagship uh, projects that they announced last year um, is uh, to try and build a carbon capture hub near Houston, um, which will capture as much as 100 million tons, I believe. And that's going to cost a lot of money. Um, and, you know, tens of billions of dollars, perhaps $100 billion uh, over the lifetime of its existence. And um, there is currently in the big climate law that is still stuck in the US uh, Congress, uh, a big rise in the subsidy that would be available for capturing and storing carbon dioxide. There's already a subsidy right now, but that subsidy would rise uh, substantially. And of course, ExxonMobil, among other companies, will benefit from that process. Circling back to the, uh, the argument about um, peak oil demand maybe arriving as early as 2030, the, the problem with the approach to uh, carbon capture and storage is that, and, and, and I think this applies to oil companies' decarbonization, decarbonization efforts generally, is that there's a very good chance that some of the, this production is going to be decarbonized and then will no longer be competitive. And there's a very uh, serious risk, I think, here of governments paying you know, a lot of money uh, for essentially what will become stranded assets. Yeah, there's that risk, and that's an interesting one where, again, if we look at it from a, a peak demand perspective, um, if you reach peak demand and it drops as, as you're talking, I mean, I think those numbers are perhaps too rosy. I don't think even in the most uh, aggressive net zero scenarios that you reach 50 million barrels of oil consumption by 2030, you might reach that by 2050. Uh, or, and by 2015, in the, in the IEA scenario, it's closer to 20, 25 million barrels of oil uh, a day, but that's you know 30 years out. In the next 10 years, it's very hard to see it dropping 50%. It will drop certainly. Um, and in those moments, if you have spent all that money building these carbon capture facilities, when Saudi Arabia is able to provide all that oil at perhaps a lower uh, scope one and two emissions because of the just the nature of the reserves they have, what will the market buy? Will it buy decarbonized Canadian oil, which is more expensive, or will it buy cheap Saudi Arabian oil, which is anyway low carbon because of the nature of the reserve? It's a good question, and that, that is a risk that will have to be accounted for in planning for these large carbon capture plants, um, which, you know, have struggle to come online. The technology certainly works if you can make it work uh, and have put in the right investment, but um, they have struggled to come online in the pace at which they need to 
uh, to meet the targets that we have set. Right, just to, to be clear, um, I was referring to interviews I've done with the International Energy Agency's oil analysts who predict that peak oil demand will occur around 2030, probably. Ah, that's right, that makes sense, correct. And then, and then decline uh, thereafter. But that, that gets you into the question then that you raised, which is there's been this scenario out there for at least you know five or 10 years of, uh, so what happens when consumption starts to decline? At what point do the low cost producers like Saudi Arabia, who produce at maybe $5 a barrel, what, what point do they say, okay, now we're into a declining uh, market, a shrinking market, and our best strategy then is to flood the market, take more market share, and force all of these higher cost producers like the Permian Basin and the Canadian Western Sedimentary Basin and force them out of, out of the market. And that's part of the danger here of decarbonization is once that strategy kicks in, a lot of ExxonMobil's production may not be competitive and particularly, it's a Permian Basin uh, production. Yeah, and that can that can throw all sorts of geopolitical problems, right? You know, right now the Americans want cheap oil, and so they want Saudi Arabia to drill more. But when oil is very cheap, um, and Saudi Arabia is still flooding the market, will America turn around and set embargoes on imports to Saudi oil? Like that's a world that's, you know certainly possible, but it's a, it's a topsy-turvy world that I don't think anybody knows how to handle right now. And uh, the sooner we think about how to manage those risks, the better. So to wrap up our conversation, Akshat, uh, I think we both agree that it would be better a better strategy for ExxonMobil to pivot uh, more quickly to a low-carbon uh, business model that might be focused on green hydrogen. It might be focused on biofuels, where ExxonMobil has been, in, you know, investing in R and D now for uh, quite some time. Uh, uh, maybe uh, electricity, whatever that might be, but some kind. So, where should that impetus come from? Should it come from activist uh, investors? Should it come from the financial community? Should it come from governments? Should it come from a change in the uh, the, the corporation's uh, senior management? Uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, I'm not sure whether the strategy that Shell and BP are pursuing of trying to go towards uh, low carbon sources of energy will actually pan out. I'm not so sure. It is a it is a risky strategy. It certainly is much more aligned with what the science wants, but from a financial perspective, from an investor perspective, it's not clear whether that will pan out. Neither is it clear whether Exxon's uh, ambition to go to only net zero on scope one and two and not address scope three is going to pan out when regulations eventually come and become stronger. I think the, the oil industry is in a very tricky position. I think the best that we can expect for these companies to do is to have climate-minded investors take the hard decisions to treat these companies to go one way or another. You know, one other route which we did talk about is harvesting mode, where you essentially run the oil reserves that the company has got on its books all the way down to zero and produces dividends for its investors in the process and sunsets. It dies as, an, as a company, but in the, in the process, it's done what the shareholders want, which is provide returns. And that's a strategy that no oil company has taken. And it, it to me is a surprisingly shocking one when that is one that from a rational shareholder perspective makes complete sense. Um, and so 
we are at this point where it's a risky uh, time to be an oil company, uh, and the future is certainly uncertain despite there being high prices today. Well, Akshat, thank you very much for this. I always appreciate appreciate your insights. Thanks for having me.